It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. It is Thursday, July 30th, 2009. I've been going through my spam filter. I have this overly sensitive spam filter. I get about uh, 250 to 300 emails a day. It's uh, from my rough estimate, I'm getting about like 10% of them are going into the spam filter. Ah. I know you don't want to hear that. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ, dishing up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to get you to think biblically, to get you to think critically, and compare. That's right, compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Now, I've talked about this before, and I'll kind of bring it up again. There's only two religions in the world. I know that you're sitting there thinking, well... That's kind of a silly and dumb thing to say. Yeah, I know. I, I, I do that a lot. And it, it's okay if you call me silly and dumb. I my, I have pretty thick skin. Um, but basically, there are only two religions in the world. There's one religion that uh, basically says that you need to save yourself by getting on God's good side. And the way you get on God's good side is you follow a prescribed plan of good deeds, and then God looks down at you from on high and goes, you know, that person's got my attention. They, they're, do, they're such a do-gooder that, uh, you know, I, I think uh, I, I, I like that guy. I'm, I'm going to help him out. And so it's kind of a, a cosmic quid pro quo, if you would. You scratch God's back and he'll scratch yours. That's right. You do these good things and God owes you. Now, the religion of works takes on multiple forms, okay? The programs vary from religion to religion, but pretty much they all teach that if you are a loving and good person, then you're in, you know, and and there's different ways of showing love, uh, but the, the today's um, pretty much common denominator, you know, it changes from culture to culture and from generation to generation. But currently, the way you show your love for God is you um, you uh, you, you uh, show kindness to the poor, uh, justice and mercy, if you would. Um, you you uh, are good with the environment. You keep a low carbon footprint. And, uh, and you know, things of that nature. So the idea is any good deed that makes the world a, quote, better place, that's the thing that God wants you to do. You, you, you see, you can't be justified by a, a gift. Instead, you're justified by the things that you do. Now, it takes on a lot of different forms. Uh, Islam would be a great example of uh, of a works-based religion. You follow the five pillars of Islam, or seven if you're, uh, is, is it Shiite? I forget the, the two distinctions. Either five or seven pillars, it really doesn't matter. There's different variation. The idea is, is that you do these things and you're in with Allah. Okay, the same thing occurs with uh, you know a, a variations of, um, we'll, we'll call it, uh, cancerous Christianity, because it's not really the Christian religion. Uh, for instance, monasticism. You know, you follow the Lectio Divina, you climb the four-rung ladder to heaven, 
and you uh, and you keep a low carbon footprint, and you pray enough, and you're and you're sincere enough, and you're in with God. You see what I'm saying? Now, the one thing that all of the different variations of the religion of works have in common is that they are subjective. And what I mean by that is is that you can't ground their truth claims in anything really objective. Um, you know, so like the other day we played the fire, the grid video promo and the fire, the grid basically was talking about all the different light workers opening a portal into the whatever's to the strange stuff to say the least. Uh, can anyone objectively tell me what a light worker is? Where do I find out about these light workers? So the one thing that the religion of works has in common, all of them. All of the different variations of the one religion, the religion of works, is that they are subjective. You basically look inside of you, find the good within your heart, do the right thing, and 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 what will happen is is that the birds will come and sit on your finger and sing you a song. It, it, you can be a, a Disney princess, if you would, because you find the love inside of your heart. It, that's the way it goes. It it always turns you inward and turns you into some kind of mysterious, non-objective, completely not grounded in anything that you can see, taste, smell, or touch. And uh, and, and but yet there's supposedly these spiritual truths out there that you can just divine. Maybe if you stick your finger in the wind, not sure. Reach out with your feelings, Luke. Whatever. The, so the religion of works is always inherently subjective for whatever reason. So you know, I, I just point that out. Whereas the religion, the other religion, the, there's another religion that says there ain't nothing that you have to offer God. N- nothing. God, <laughs> you say you want to give your heart to God. God, will, what do I need a thing like that for? You know what's funny is is that uh, there's a wonderful book. If you've never read it, I you got to be careful. This is one of those books that will be a mind bender for those of you out there who are not familiar with um with this uh, type of stuff. Let me see if I can pull this up here. Um, let's see here. Find Luther. Got to find my Luther. No, I'm not finding it. Oh, man. Rosemary. Hang on a second here. <clears throat> here it is. There's a wonderful book out there by the name of The Hammer of God. It's written by a gentleman by the name of Bo Geertz. And I recently had uh, Pastor Mike uh, from uh, Raleigh View, Alberta, uh, send me a quote from it. Fantastic book. I read this book when I was on my way out of pietism. And um, I got to say, it rocked my world. So you got to be careful if you're going to read this book because its truth is, um, shall we say, a little bit mind-bending. But uh, there's this quote excerpt from uh, pages 122 to 124 of the book, The Hammer of God. And uh, I I don't know exactly how to set this up properly, except for there's two pastors, one older and one younger. And the younger one has kind of reported for duty at this uh, parish. And so this takes place back, uh, you know, a while ago, if you would. Anyway, here's a quote. It says, where in the world have you been able to find all these pictures, sir? Asked Fridfelt, who had not uh, honored all his military glory with a glance, but had with increasing wonder taken stock of the ugly little man who gesticulated with his pipe 
and energetically kept pulling his head deeper into the turned-up collar of his dressing gown. Uh, I think he had a, a, a basically a collection. Uh, this uh, this older pastor really had like a collection of toy soldiers, like little tin soldiers, and, and he considered that to kind of be a vain hobby. And so he says, just a hobby, my boy, just a hobby. Even as a boy, I began dabbling with colors, and, and little by little it added up to this. The big difficulty is I chose the right uh, is to choose the right colors. The models may have uh, may be found in illustrations everywhere. Now, Friedfeld felt, felt, uh, <clears throat> seated himself on the sofa. He felt that he must not put off confessing where he stood. The strange old man with his brandy and his soldiers should at least learn what kind of assistant he had gotten. I just want you to know, from the beginning, sir, that, that I'm a believer, he said. His voice with, uh, was a bit harsh. He saw a gleam in the old man's eyes, which he could not quite interpret. Uh, was approval indicated, or did he have something else up his sleeve? The rector put the lamp back on the table, puffed at his pipe, and looked at the young man a moment before he spoke. So you're a believer? <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. What do you believe in? Fridfeld stared dumbfounded at his superior. He was jesting with him. Uh, but, sir, I, I, I am simply saying that I'm a believer. Uh, yes, I, I heard that, my boy. But what is it that you believe in? Now, Friedfeld was almost speechless. But don't you know, sir, what it means to be a believer? Uh, that is a word which can stand for things that differ greatly, my boy. I asked only what it is that you believe in. Well, in Jesus, of course, answered Friedfeld, raising his voice. I mean, I mean, I, I, I have been—I have given him my heart. Now the older man's face became suddenly as solemn as the grave. Well, do you consider that something to give him? Well, by this time, Friedfeld was almost in tears. But, sir, if you do not give your heart to Jesus, you cannot be saved. Well, you are right, my boy. And it is just as true that if you think you are saved because you give your give Jesus your heart, that you will not be saved. You see, my boy, he continued reassuringly as he continued to look at the young pastor's face, in which uncertainty and resentment were shown in a struggle for the upper hand, it is one thing to choose Jesus as one's Lord and Savior, to give him one's heart and commit oneself to him, and that he now accepts one into his little flock. It's a very different thing to believe on him as a redeemer of sinners on whom one is chief. One does not choose a redeemer for oneself, you understand, nor give one's heart to him. The heart is a rusty old can on a junk heap, a fine birthday gift indeed. But a wonderful Lord passes by and has mercy on the wretched tin can, sticks his walking cane through it and rescues it from the junk pile and takes it home with him. That's how it is. Friedfeld said nothing. Though it seemed sacrilegious to speak about the Savior in connection with such an ungodly thing as a walking stick, he saw the old man's intention and was certainly not sacrilegious. He felt by the very tone of his voice that when the old man continues, his voice was gentler still. And now you must understand that these two ways of believing are like two different religions. They have nothing whatever to do with each other. And yet, he added thoughtfully, one might say that there is a path that leads from the lesser to the greater. First one believes in repentance and then in grace, and I believe that you are on that path. But now we must argue no longer, he said briskly. It's probably 
Uh, it probably does not pay, nor can I ever convince you with words. But out there, he pointed with his pipe toward the dark winter night outside, out there you will find a strict and demanding teacher. <laughs> <laughs> love that quote. Pastor uh, Mike, uh, thank you for emailing me that. Again, it's probably been about 12, 15 years since I've read that fantastic book. By the way, the name of the book is The Hammer of God by Bo Geertz. Point being, coming back to my original point in this monologue here, uh, the second religion basically says there's nothing, absolutely nothing you can do to please God. You can knock yourself out all you want. You can give... Your entire fortune away to the poor. You could be a Mother Teresa. You could keep the lowest carbon footprint possible. And still, God would basically not be pleased with you at all. Hebrews 11.6 For without faith, it's impossible to please God. You see... God is pleased with you not because of your puny, insignificant, ridiculously wretched, and tainted with sin. Think along the lines of, I hate to use this metaphor, but it works. Dirty underwear. That Your, your, your best good works are like, well, three or four day old underwear that you haven't changed. You, you figure out the rest of it. That's the best of your good works. There's nothing that God's going to look at and go, oh, oh, finally I've been waiting for a guy to do something as good as that. N no. We are declared righteous by Christ's righteousness, by his gifts. We are given salvation as a gift, free and clear, 100% pardon, debt canceled. God doesn't, you don't give your heart to God. He rescues and redeems you. Completely different thing altogether. And here's the fun part about it. Uh, the, the second religion that I'm describing, also known as biblical Christianity, is not subjective. It's purely objective. You can't find it in your heart. There's, n In fact, if you were to meditate on your navel uh, into the wee hours of the night, fast for a week or 40 days, if you would, you would never find the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ within you. This is a message that comes to you from outside of yourself. You don't find it in your heart. You're not going to find it some in some spiritual plane. It's there for you outside of you. It's preached and proclaimed to you by fellow sinners. And it's objectively verifiable. That's the fun part about it. In fact, so objectively verifiable and so objective are the claims of Christianity compared to any other religion. Christianity is the only religion that has a religious truth claim that can be falsified. Yeah, you, you can actually prove Christianity wrong. And the real simple way to do that is to dig up the bones of Jesus Christ. If you can definitively prove that you've got the bones of Jesus Christ in your possession, you have overturned Christianity. Plain and simple, because it's based upon an objective set of facts that took place in real time and space, in real history, and it has nothing to do with your heart, it has nothing to do with searching inside of yourself, do the work, find the evidence, and you'll draw the same conclusion. 
Jesus Christ was a person of history who truly was a miracle worker who preached and taught about the time of 30 to 33 A.D. He really was crucified under Pontius Pilate, and he really was raised from the dead. So now the question remains, after you've done your objective research, what does it all mean? He claimed to be God in human flesh, claimed to die on the cross for your sins. You see, all the facts of Christianity, all the subjective evidence, do not equal faith. No, not at all. The devil knows that the history regarding Jesus Christ is 100% true. Yet he's not saved, is he? No. Faith is that simple childlike trust that basically clings to the good news attached to these objective objective historical facts that Jesus Christ lived and died and was resurrected. The theological gospel is that these things took place to redeem you, to save you from God's wrath and eternal punishment. And it was all done for you without your permission, without you looking inside of yourself. So stop looking inside and look outside to the objective gospel the word of God, which proclaims this incredible good news. Christ died for your sins. That's right. You are a wretched sinner who has earned nothing more and nothing less than God's eternal punishment and wrath for your wickedness. You're not an okay person. You're not a semi-good person. You're not an averagely good person. You are a wretched and depraved sinner according to the objective word outside of you. So stop turning within and look outside of you. Look to the cross of Jesus Christ, because there your great God and Savior died for you and for your sins. It's objective. So the two religions in the world, one is objective, the other is subjective. One is a religion of works, the other is a religion of grace. The religion of works is always subjective and mystical and grounded in midair without any anchoring whatsoever on anything solid. Whereas the religion of grace, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Christ dying for your sins, 100% objective, not subjective, not within you, outside of you. Just wanted to point all that out. <clears throat> and all of that's just monologue to kind of start the day off. <clears throat> My first parting shots, if you would. All right, we, we actually have a program we're going to get to today. Got an email uh, regarding the Trinity we're going to talk about here today. And then we got some news. Uh, remember a while ago we talked about that uh, collection agency that was being sued for um, – uh, because the WWJD model that appeared on their uh, stationery was considered to be abusive. Well, we'll talk about that. We have some news about that particular uh, uh, news story here. And then we got news, uh, well, beheadings mark attacks on Christians. So uh, uh, Islamic militants in Somalia are acting up. We need to send Rick Warren in to uh, fix that. And then uh, stranger in the uh, truth is stranger than fiction category, we've got a news story coming out of the UK. Uh, the church is telling worshipers to give special treatment to overweight and bald people. Yeah, you heard that right. That is not a piece of satire. That is an actual news story that we'll be getting to today. So you definitely don't want to miss that. And then for our sermon review, since we did the Carrie Shook sermon yesterday and 
Carrie Shook is second on the list as far as my least favorite pastors that we review sermons here at uh, Fighting for the Faith. I figured we'd just go whole hog and uh, we'd <laughs> whip out a Joel Osteen sermon. <clears throat> and this one's called Be Faithful in the Small Things. <sighs> so uh, grab a Pepsid and an adult beverage or three and uh, sit down and enjoy the program. We've got a lot of ground to cover. All right, let's dive into our email here. Got an email from uh, Samuel. Not sure where Samuel's from, but he uh, he emails me regarding the Trinity. And he says, uh, Chris, I understand the basic concept of the Trinity as far as it is humanly understandable. What I wanted to ask you about was the fact that you call people heretics for denying the Trinity, not because they deny that the persons of the Trinity are God, but that they deny the existence in three different persons. The Trinity is being one. I don't think uh, the Father is somewhere condemning people as a heretic for confusing his person for the Son. As a matter of fact, Jesus said that we must honor the Son as we honor the Father, and in Isaiah, uh, God refers to the Son as the everlasting Father. I don't believe there is any biblical basis for saying that if someone, this is not what I believe, uh, was to think that God was manifested in three different ways without being necessarily three persons, yet one, that they would be considered a heretic. All right, now Sam, I'm going to stop you right there. Actually, historically, you're wrong, Okay. Uh, the heresy that you're describing is the uh, the heresy that is described as modalism. Okay, it's this idea that uh, that God is one, and there are not three persons in the Trinity, but God shows Himself in three different modes. The problem is, is that historically this has been always considered to be a heresy, and by the Church itself. Now, let me point out what the reason why the Church considers this a heresy. The reason why is because it outright denies uh, how it denies the revelation that God has given us about himself and his nature. God has revealed himself as one God and three persons. And even though you're correct on the passages that you quoted me, that is not the full counsel of the Word of God. And so you need to look at the full breadth of God's Word regarding the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, let me read to you an ancient creed. This is known as the Athanasian Creed, and I want you to listen carefully to what it says. Uh, this was uh, written early in the 4th century, okay? Here it's, it's the Athanasian Creed. Here it goes. Whoever desires to be saved must above all hold the Catholic faith. Now, don't get all squirmy about the word Catholic here. We're not talking about the Roman Catholic Church. We're talking about the church universal. That's what the word Catholic means. Whoever does not keep it whole and undefiled will without doubt perish eternally. And the Catholic faith is this, that we worship one God in Trinity and Trinity in unity neither confusing the persons nor dividing the substance. For the Father is one person, the Son is another, the Holy Spirit is another. But the Godhead of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Spirit is one, the glory equal, the majesty co-eternal. Such as the Father is, such is the Son, such is the Holy Spirit. The Father uncreated, the Son uncreated, the Holy Spirit uncreated. The Father, infinite. The Son, infinite. The Holy Spirit, infinite. The Father, eternal. The Son, eternal. The Holy Spirit, eternal. And yet there are not three eternals, but one eternal, just as there are not three uncreated or three infinites, but one uncreated and one infinite. In the same way, the Father is almighty, the Son is almighty, and the Holy Spirit is almighty. And yet there are not three almighties, but only one almighty. 
So the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. Yet there are not three gods, but one God. So the Father is Lord, the Son is Lord, and the Holy Spirit is Lord. Yet there are not three lords, but one Lord. Just as we are compelled by the Christian truth to acknowledge each distinct person as God and Lord, so also are we prohibited by the true Catholic religion to say that there are three gods or lords. Notice this creed is grounded and is a summary of what the scriptures teach. The Father is not made nor created the, uh, nor begotten by anyone. The Son is neither made nor created but begotten of the Father alone. The Holy Spirit is of the Father and of the Son, neither made nor created nor begotten but proceeding. Thus there is one Father, not three fathers, one Son, not three sons, one Holy Spirit, not three Holy Spirits. And this Trinity... In this trinity, none is before or after another, none is greater or less than another. But the whole three persons are co-eternal with each other and co-eternal, so that in all things, as has been stated above, the trinity in unity and unity in trinity is to be worshipped. Therefore, whoever desires to be saved must think this way about the trinity. But it is also necessary for everlasting salvation that one faithfully believe the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is the right faith that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is at the same time both God and man. He is God, begotten from the substance of the Father before all ages, and he is man, born of the substance of his mother in this age. Perfect God and perfect man, composed of a rational soul and human flesh, equal to the Father with respect to divinity, his divinity less than the Father with respect to his humanity. Notice this part here in talking about uh, what's going on here. The big reason why modalism is a heresy comes back down to the problems created by this heresy in regards to understanding the incarnation. Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. If you were to say that the Son of God is the same as God the Father, without correctly understanding what the full interpretation of Scripture is, what you've done is you've created an idol for yourself, and then you've got all kinds of problems to explain, namely being uh, the problem that, um, you know, here you have Jesus being baptized, and God the Father speaking from heaven saying, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased, and the Holy Spirit descending like a dove. Well, If modalism is correct, and it's not, it's a heresy. It's a false understanding of God, therefore they worship a false god. Uh, Then you basically have Jesus putting on a light show, making the Holy Spirit appear, and throwing his voice up into heaven while he's being baptized. If Jesus Christ is the same as the Father, then who was he praying to? You know, where he said, you know, not my will be done, but your will be done. Was he talking to himself like some crazy, blathering schizophrenic? No. See, the the reason why modalism is a heresy is because it does not, does not worship God as he has revealed himself in Scripture. That's why we have the Athanasian Creed and why the church has always considered deviation from this understanding of God to be heretical got it just want to point that out all right we're up on our first break when we come back we'll get into the news and then we come we're done with the news we'll get into our sermon review today uh joel osteen's sermon about being faithful in the small things you know because you know yeah well i just can't wait to get into the sermon i can't say enough good i can't say anything good about it 
<clears throat> Sorry, I'm stumbling over my words here. Just the thought of it. You know, I figured, you know, just double trouble today. Why not? Go for it. You'll throw caution to the wind and <sighs> do a Joel Osteen sermon. Anyway, if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on today's program, you can talk back at fightingforthefaith.com or you can look me up on Facebook. My name there, well, it's Chris Roseborough. Or you can find me on Twitter. My name there is Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Good in the sack is not the measure of true Christian sanctification. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> My name is Rex, and if you study with my eight-week program, you will learn a self-feeder system that I developed over two seasons of preaching in the Octagon. It's called Rex Quando. I need a volunteer to come up here and show that they trust me. Um, here. Okay, you'll do. Come up here. Bow to your pastor. Bow to your pastor! Okay, now I'm gonna give you one chance. One chance, people. Turn around. Turn around. All right. Now fall back and I'll catch you. Ow. That was pretty good. Now, listen, everybody. The reason why he fell was because he didn't have enough faith. Go sit down. Okay. When I fall, I fall in slow motion every time. Now, in addition to what you just saw, if you study with my eight-week program, you're going to learn these things. First off, in Rex Kwando. We use the buddy system. No more reading the Bible solo. You need somebody watching your back at all times. Second off, you're going to learn to discipline your image. You think I got where I am today because I dress like Peter Pan here? Take a look at what I'm wearing, people. Bible pants. Yeah, you have to be pretty righteous to rock these babies. Do you think anybody wants a roundhouse kick to the face while I'm wearing these bad boys? Forget about it. Last off. My students will learn how to walk on water, heal babies, raise the dead, and be extreme. Now, for only one $300 seat offering, you can sign up right now for my eight-week program here at Guts Church. Orthodox Christianity clearly teaches God's law, which condemns our sinful nature and clearly proclaims the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf to pay for our sinfulness. These truths of Holy Scripture are timeless and objective. However, a creeping fog known as the emergent church threatens to unravel these clear teachings by redefining the vocabulary and core beliefs of the Christian faith in terms of subjective personal feelings and experiences. That is why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to offer The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity, a book by Bob DeWay that is widely regarded as the best book available on the emergent heresy. 
The book is $12.95 plus $4 shipping and handling, and all proceeds directly support the Christ-centered ministry of Pirate Christian Radio. Log on today to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy of The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity. All right, we're back. Ha! Just looking at the news here. All right, need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means uh, your financial support is vital for us in order to continue uh, bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. You can support us a couple of ways, and believe me, we do need your support. You can uh, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com, home of the Fighting for the Faith radio archives. That's uh, the entire body of our uh, program is available to you there. Uh, you find when you get to the website, find one of the friendly yellow donate buttons. It'll take you to a PayPal web page, and there you can uh, securely send your gift in instantaneously. Or if you would like to do it the traditional way, you can by vis- uh, by sending your check to Fighting for the Faith, Post Office Box five zero eight, Fishers, Indiana, zip code four six zero three eight. All right, we're going to switch gears here, do a little bit of news, because uh, this is interesting when we get a follow-up story. If you remember back a while ago on the program, we talked about a company uh, in, uh, I think, Minneapolis, Minnesota, that had a federal class action lawsuit brought against it. It's a, the name of it was Bullseye Collection Agency, and on their uh, on their collection letters, they have the uh, the letters WWJD, that means What Would Jesus Do?, and uh, some ne'er-do-wells who had fallen behind on their payments and their stuff had gone to collections uh, decided that uh, rather than pay their bill, instead they would file a lawsuit against Bullseye claiming that they were being harassed and oppressed because WWJD was their motto. <sighs> well, apparently there's, uh, well, how shall I say it? There's news uh, regarding this particular um, uh, story and... Uh, there's our news music. Uh, the news is, is that the lawsuit has been dismissed with prejudice. Yeah, I know some of you are going, hey, prejudice is a bad thing. Yeah, I, I, I know that's not what they mean. Um, so that's what WWJD lawsuit dismissed with pre- prejudice is the headline. And this was put out as a news uh, wire release by uh, Liberty Council Public Relations Department. Minneapolis, Minnesota, July 28th, uh, via Christian Newswire. A federal class action lawsuit against Bullseye Collection Agency, which uh, challenged Bullseye's WWJD business model, has now been dismissed with prejudice. Uh, The plaintiffs in that suit, Mark and Sarah Neal, claimed they were harassed and oppressed when they received a collection letter from the bull, from Bullseye that contained the same WJD, WWJD model that Bullseye includes on all of its business communications. Of course, as far as being uh, as oppressive, WJD, WWJD is an acronym that sometimes means what would Jesus do? Bullseye, a small family-owned business, uses the motto as a reminder to act with diligence and respect in an industry t- traditionally characterized by ruthlessness and incivility. 
Instead of abandoning its motto or giving up its constitutional rights, Bullseye fought back with Liberty Council's assistance. Bullseye argued that WWJD is not oppressive as a matter of law and cannot violate the law. Bullseye also argued that if any law actually prohibits the benign and courteous use of WWJD as a business motto, then such a law is unconstitutional because it violates Bullseye's freedom of speech, freedom of religion, and equal protection rights, which, by the way, we enjoy at the moment, which we may not enjoy next week. In addition to vigorously defending Bullseye's Bullseye, Liberty Council has filed a comprehensive counterclaim against the Neals and another company, Bureau of Collection Recovery, LLC. Bullseye discovered that Mr. Neal was no stranger to the collection business, but was the president of BCR. Bullseye, he, he was the, oh, really? He was the president of another collection agency? A giant competitor collection company with offices in the United States and India. So let me see if I have this straight. Uh, Mr. and Mrs. Neal filed a class action federal lawsuit against Bullseye Collection Agency because their business stationery has um, had WWJD on it, and they were claiming that they were being harassed and oppressed by them. And it turns out that the Neal, Mr. Neal was actually the president of a competing collection agency called Bureau of Collection Recovery, LLC. <laughs> There's no uh, conflict of interest there, do you think? So let me so the president of the president of a collection agency had a bill that went into collections. And he sued the his competitor because their stationery had WWJD on it. I I I got it. Oh boy, these stories get weirder by the minute. <clears throat> Bullseye alleged that the Neals and BCR abused the legal process and engaged in a conspiracy to harm Bullseye uh, competitively and to deprive Bullseye of its constitutional rights. That sounds about right to me. Um, upon receiving Bullseye's counterclaim, the Neals decided to abandon their frivolous crusade against Bullseye. They dismissed with prejudice each of, the cl of their claims such that they can never bring them again in any court. As a result, Bullseye remains free to use WWJD on its stationery, and its constitutional rights remain intact. Interesting story. Interesting story. You know, we complained about the fact that people were saying, ah, can't use WWJD on your stationery. You're harassing me and calling me a sinner. <laughs> you can't do that to me. I... <clears throat> That's all right. Next week, we'll lose that constitutional right. Just watch. Something will happen, and you know we won't be able to say people are sinners. It's coming, and I just want to let you know. All right. Call Rick Warren. Got a news story here from the Baptist Press. Uh, the headline reads, Beheadings Mark Attacks on Christians, written by a staff writer there at the Baptist Press. Uh, Dateline Nashville, Tennessee. Islamic militants in Somalia have killed eight Christians this year, along with two sons of a Christian leader, according to reports by Reuters Africa and Compass Direct News. Nine of the ten victims were beheaded, according to the reports. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, there we go again. The religion of peace at it again. <laughs> the killings stem from the push by extremists Al-Shaabab insurgents to topple Somalia's West-leaning transitional government and to enforce Sharia Islamic law in areas they control in the African nation's capital, Mogadishu, and in southern Somalia, according to the reports. Apart from the ten killings, 
Uh, neither Reuters nor Compass speculated uh, on the overall scope of mayhem being directed at Somalia's Christians who comprise less than 1% of the nation's 9.8 million people. Compass did state, however, that al-Shabaab, uh, buttressed by foreign fighters reportedly with ties to al-Qaeda, is monitoring converts from Islam and is intent on, quote, cleansing Christians, especially uh, from areas where Christian workers have provided medical aid through former Christian-operated hospitals. <sighs> yeah, religion of peace, at it again. And then we have this juicy little tidbit. <laughs> I, I, this, I, I, this is one of the weirdest stories I've read in a long time. The headline, <laughs> this is from The Telegraph in the U.K., Church tells worshipers to give special treatment to overweight or bald people. <laughs> I hadn't. <laughs> oh, man. Glad to know that in the UK I would get special treatment if I walked into a church. Not because I'm bald either. You can figure out what's missing in that one. <sighs> That's the headline. Okay, the, the secondary headline reads, Churches should try harder to make bald and overweight people feel more welcome. <laughs> According to a new guidance that's being issued to the clergy. <sighs> the Church of England uh, book published this week says that they should be regarded as worshippers with special needs. Alongside the blind, the deaf, breastfeeding mothers, and very short people. <laughs> and readers of tabloid newspapers. <laughs> Oh, oh man. Okay, I'm 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 dying here. Just dying. <laughs> so if you're bald or overweight, you're a special needs worshiper. <laughs> oh man, this is killing me. The advice is part of an initiative launched this week to make churches more friendly and less intimidating to newcomers and attempt to increase attendance at services. Just all right, before I read any more of the story, how exactly do you meet the special need, worship need uh, the special needs of people who are bald or overweight? I mean, what ex exactly is the church to do here? I mean, this is the Church of England. I, I'm assuming that many of the churches in the Church of England still use pews. So, uh, for the overweight people, what are they recommending? Wider pews? I mean, pews are wide already. Um, I have to read the rest of the story. I, I'm a little confused here. What, and what's the special needs of a worshiper who's bald? I, <laughs> I am at a loss here. <laughs> Let's keep reading, because I'm sure the story is going to answer this wonderful question. Among those considered to warrant particular attention are people who are blind, deaf, or in wheelchairs. However, it also warns that bald people could be in trouble from those overhead radiant heaters. Some churches have... <laughs> overhead radiant heaters that churches have unwittingly installed there you go see what what can happen nothing could be more embarrassing than having a bald person come into your church and worship there and you not recognizing the fact that they're a worshiper with special needs and you sticker stick them right under the french fry lights and they end up getting a sunburn 
Oh, man, I'm having a hard time with this one. Some pew spaces and chairs are embarrassingly inadequate for what is known in the church as the wider community, the book says. Consideration should be given to recovering alcoholics who want to receive communion wine. It suggests, and for those who find loud noises from organs or music groups distressing. Maybe they can have mime worship for those who think that, nah, mind. The book called Everybody is Welcome claims that only in 10 church vi- only one in 10 church visitors return because existing worshipers tend to be so unwelcoming it urges churches to become more professional in their attitude to attracting newcomers and suggests they follow the example of department stores and appointing customer care managers uh, the book has <laughs> been co-authored by uh, uh, the Venerable Bob Jackson, Archdeacon of, Wals- of Walsall, and one of the church's leading experts on growth, and George, uh, Reverend George Fisher, Director of Parish Mission for the Diocese of Lynchfield. They warn that churches' failure to realize how unfriendly they can seem to visitors could lead them to long-term decline in the number of people worshiping. Although... Church attendance has steadied over the past couple of years. The number of worshipers fell by 100,000 between 2000 and 2002, a drop of nearly 8%. My question would be, are those people that died? Uh, The book reveals that 90% of people who visit a church do not join them. We may not realize how how unwelcoming we appear to the outsider. You know, you just got to challenge the assumptions of this uh, particular book here. All right, so 90% of the people who visit your church do not become members. Um, how many of those 90% of the people who are visiting the church are those Christmas and Easter set people, the people who, for whatever reason, decide that Christmas and Easter are the time to feel religious? And the way you do that is by, you know, darkening the doorstep of a church and, you know, sitting in on a, on a, on a service. I mean, and now what are we to learn here that the, the, the wider crowd, obviously the pews weren't wide enough, and, uh, and the bald people ended up getting their heads fried. <laughs> I can't read the story anymore. I just, oh, man. Ugh. Seriously. <laughs> How unwelcoming would it be? You poor bald people out there. I mean, could you imagine getting a sunburn while attending a church? This... Just the tragedy of the whole thing just makes me want to cry. <sighs> I I am sorry. <laughs> oh man. Okay, we're switching gears here. Um, we're back in the Book of Acts. Uh, we've been working our way through the books of Book of Acts, and I think we finished. Uh, uh, yep, we finished twelve. We're now in Acts chapter thirteen. And uh, so we've been working our way through the book of Acts, and the, really the goal of this particular exercise has to do with uh, really paying attention to and watching how the disciples bring the gospel to a completely pagan world. I mean, they've never heard of Christianity before. Jesus Christ, they may have heard rumors about him, but do they go and do, you know, do, notice that uh, we just read about Paul and Barnabas, how they were, you know, they were in the church in Antioch and they were sent out by the Holy Spirit uh, to uh, to go and uh, plant churches and, and, you know, basically do evangelism. Notice that Paul and Barnabas were not sitting in their church and the Holy Spirit said, what you really need to do is stop being so selfish and stop reading the Bible and going deep. And what you really need to do is set up a seeker-friendly service that will be more attractive to the culture of these pagans. No. What did they do instead? They went out and boldly proclaimed 
Jesus is the Christ from fulfilled prophecy in the synagogues and proclaim to these people repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Why is that important? Well, the reason why it's important is, first of all, there's a fundamentally huge flaw in the whole seeker-driven model. And that is, is that somehow we can make the a gospel, quote, attractive to people. The gospel is never going to be attractive to anybody because people are by nature at war with God and dead in trespasses and sins. You can't gussy it up and have them go, oh, now I want it. No, you go out and you boldly proclaim it. And what does God do? He takes dead sinners and literally breathes new life into them, raises them from the dead, tanks their heart of stone and gives them a heart of flesh, and uh, and you know and raises you know, raises them from the dead. So it's this bold proclamation of the of repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And the the one of the things you're going to see as we progress in uh, in our study of the Book of Acts is that um, there are people, and we just sh- saw this in Acts chapter 13 who are not thrilled with this message. And as a result of it, they end up persecuting the messengers. Okay? This is to be expected. Remember, when the, when Jesus was uh, nearing the end of his ministry on earth, people said, yeah, that's really great stuff. Kill him. <laughs> they, <clears throat> yeah, they, they weren't all that kind to Jesus. Just wanted to point it out, just a fact I've noticed. Anyway, so we pick up now in Acts chapter 14, Paul and Barnabas are on their first missionary journey, and they come to Iconium. Here we go. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. How did they believe? God raised them through the, from the dead. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. They went and boldly proclaimed repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. They proclaimed him as the Messiah. So it says a great number of Jews and Greeks believe, but an, uh, the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. Uh, so much for uh, you know making the uh, the message more appealing. <clears throat> uh, Paul and Barnabas never stopped to do that at all. You can't. All right, so they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. And when an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, yeah, there we go, and that shows you the reception that the good news gets sometimes. They learned of it, and they fled to Lystra and Derby, cities of Laconia, and the surrounding country, and there they continued to preach the gospel. Okay? None of the seeker-sensitive stuff going on. They're out there boldly proclaiming it, and what happens? Some believe, others reject, and they return the favor for the rejection by wanting to kill them. Just want to point it out, working for God can be hazardous to your health. Um, God is not subject to modern-day OSHA standards when it comes to employment um, and benefits. Just want to let you know. Acts chapter 14, verse 8. Now at Leicester there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth, and he had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, he said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices in the Lyconian language, and they said, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. 
And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, be, uh, brought oxen and garlands to the gate and wanted to offer sacrifice uh, with the crowds. But when Paul, the apostles Paul and Barnabas heard of it, they tore their garments, rushed out into the crowd, crying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of, uh, men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In the past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven, fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. Uh, but the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. I want to point something out here. Um, Paul heals a man who's crippled. Wasn't he making the world a better place? I mean, what a loving, kind thing to do, to heal somebody who's crippled. And what was his reward for this loving act of kindness, this random act of kindness, if you would, um, they stoned Paul until they thought he was dead. So much for making the world a better place. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Well, so much for your best life now. And when they had appointed elders uh, for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. And when they had passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia, and when they had spoken uh, the word in Perga and went down to Attilia, and from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived, they gathered the church together and they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles and they remained no little time with the disciples. Great story. We continue. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, <clears throat> unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, notice that Paul and Barnabas didn't sit idly by and go, oh, well, they're well-meaning Christian brothers. These men who were preaching a different gospel, Paul and Barnabas got in their face, debated with them. Some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought, and it brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them in order to keep the law of Moses. So then the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. 
And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people of for his own name. And when, this, and when the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, After this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. And the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what's been strangled, and from blood, and from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogue. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders and the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas and send Judas called Barsabbas and Silas leading men among the brothers with the following letter. Quote, the brothers, both the apostles and the elders to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and have troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions. It has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have sent uh, Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by, the, uh, by word of mouth, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idol, from blood and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourself from, from these, you will do well. Now farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they sent them off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John, who is also called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take uh, with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement, so they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas, departed, having uh, been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord, and he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. All right. We're up on our second break. When we get back, we'll be doing our Joel Osteen sermon review. It's going to be all kinds of fun. Being faithful in the little things is what it's called. I'm sure we're going to learn all kinds of things from God's word from it. 
Anyway, sorry, I, I must be getting a flu or something. If you'd like to email me, you can. Talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or look me up on Facebook or follow me on Twitter. My name there is Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Christianity, we need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Avaster, it be too late to alter course, mateys, and there be plundering pirates lurking in every cove, waiting to board. Sit closer together and keep your ruddy hands inboard. That be the best way to repel borders. And mark well me words, mateys, dead men tell no tales. Orthodox Christianity clearly teaches God's law, which condemns our sinful nature, and clearly proclaims the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection on our behalf to pay for our sinfulness. These truths of Holy Scripture are timeless and objective. However, a creeping fog known as the emergent church threatens to unravel these clear teachings by redefining the vocabulary and core beliefs of the Christian faith in terms of subjective personal feelings and experiences. That is why Pirate Christian Radio is proud to offer The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity, a book by Bob DeWay that is widely regarded as the best book available on the emergent heresy. The book is $12.95 plus $4 shipping and handling, and all proceeds directly support the Christ-centered ministry of Pirate Christian Radio. Log on today to piratechristianradio.com and order your copy of The Emergent Church, Undefining Christianity. Hour number two, straight ahead, sermon review hour here at Fighting for the Faith. We'll be doing a Joel Osteen sermon, America's pastor. You know, funny enough, as far as uh, total uh, people listening to pastors and following them, Joel Osteen is light years now above uh, Rick Warren and uh, Bill Hybels. Yeah, there's more people who uh, listen to Joel Osteen than to Rick Warren. So that's one of the reasons why we review Joel Osteen's sermons here. Because uh, it gives uh, his uh, followers an opportunity to uh, hear a critical review of uh, what it is that this man's preaching. Because uh, so far, of all the times we've done a sermon review of Joel Osteen here at Fighting for the Faith, I don't think I've ever heard the biblical gospel preached. And... Come to think of it, I don't think I've ever heard a single verse actually quoted correctly in context and correctly, uh, well, you know, exegeted. Maybe I'm just being critical. You know, because uh, there was a a sermon I could have reviewed about having, about being critical, but we did a critical think, uh, uh, you know, a critical negative attitude sermon earlier this week from Ed Young. Anyway, without any further ado... Ah, yeah. Good, the bad, the ugly. Manly music. (laughs) By the way, if you were concerned that I ended up going out and killing small woodland creatures yesterday after 
We're listening to Carrie Shook's sermon. My wife talked me out of the rifle. She took the rifle out of my hands, and we went out and played Frisbee golf instead. So it involves trees and being outdoors, and it, it was manly enough. So I, I did not end up killing any squirrels. Just wanted to let you know that. Because I know some of you are worried about, you know, Roseboro going on a rampage and, you know, Bambi and Thumper and squirrels and little cute woodland creatures with big eyeballs and cute little faces and fuzzy little cheeks being murdered in cold blood. Well, it didn't happen. Just want to let you know. Anyway, enough of the music. Thank you. Yeah, our our sermon today is called Be Faithful in the Small Things. <clears throat> but <clears throat> yeah, uh, by uh, Joel Osteen, and uh, I, so I guess without any further ado, let's uh, dive in. Let's get past their their music here. Hold on, here we go. Just gonna skip through the. You know what? Hang on a second here. I gotta play the become. You know, hang on. What would a Joel Osteen sermon be without that? Discover the sinner in you. That's not how the lyrics go, but I like it. Well, God bless you. Always a joy to come into your homes. We love you. We know God has something great in store. If you're ever in our area, please stop by and be a part of one of our services. I promise you we'll make you feel right at home. But thanks for tuning in, and thanks again for coming out today. And I like to start with something funny, and I heard about this archaeologist from New York. He, oh, an archaeology joke. This ought to be good. He dug down 10 feet. You know, I wonder if, if uh, we could put together a book of uh, Joel Osteen's greatest jokes. The Joel Osteen Joke Book. Who was it that sent me the message on Facebook? They just were taunting me. Somebody sent me a photograph. They, they, a couple. They own a copy of Joel Osteen's game, Your Best Life Now, the game, and they, they sent me a photograph of themselves, kind of taunting me, like, oh, look what we got. I was kind of jealous because you know, I've wanted one of those, but I have not been able to bring myself to spend the money to get one. I'm hoping I'll find one at a garage sale or a you know a five and dime store, but uh, you know. <sighs> I just I just had to bring that up. I can't I can't remember their names offhand, but man, the look on their faces they they were the proud owners of the Joel Osteen Your Best Life Now the game. <sighs> and discovered traces of copper wiring dating back a hundred years. He concluded that New Yorkers had a telephone network over a hundred years ago. Not to be outdone. An archaeologist from California dug down 20 feet and found traces of copper wiring 200 years old. He concluded that Californians had a massive high-tech communications network over 100 years before the New Yorkers. Hearing these reports, Bubba from Texas (laughs) dug down 30 feet on his farm and found absolutely nothing. He concluded that 300 years ago, Texans had already gone wireless. <laughs> Hold up your Bible. Uh, rim shot. Yeah. All right, here comes the Joel Osteen Creed that's all about me. <laughs> like you mean it. This is my Bible. 
I am what it says I am. I have what it says I have. I can do what it says I can do. Today, I will be taught the Word of God. I boldly confess my mind is alert. My heart is receptive. I will never be the same. In Jesus' name, God bless you. I want to talk to you today about being faithful in small things. When God has something great for us to do, He often starts with something small. And how we handle the seemingly insignificant things will determine whether or not we see God's blessings in a greater way. Maybe you're working as an assistant at the office, but you know you've got more in you. You could easily run that whole office, but it's been a long time and you're not seeing any new opportunities. You could easily get discouraged and start slacking off, being less than your best. But those years of doing what you might consider to be an insignificant task, where you're not making any progress, that's what's getting you prepared for the great things God has in store. That's a time of proving. The road to greatness often goes through the road of smallness. You have to show God you'll be faithful in the wilderness before you'll get promoted to your promised land. Okay, uh, is this the law or is this the gospel? I'm just asking because, uh, remember, there's two religions out there, one that says you can save yourself. And here, if you're faithful with the small things, then you're, God's going to owe you a promotion. That's how I'm hearing this. But if we have a sour attitude and we think, I'm more talented than my supervisor, I should have their position. I shouldn't have to clean up after these people. I've got more experience than them. Or, Joel, I wanted to be in leadership, and they put me in the nursery. I thought I'd be praying for people. They've got me changing diapers. No, if you're not faithful where you are, you will never get to where God wants you to be. My father started Lakewood with 90 people back in 1959. They were in a little abandoned feed store. It was an old rundown building. My dad had just been the pastor of a big, beautiful church. He had over a thousand members. And for some reason, for 13 years, Lakewood hardly grew at all. Here, my dad was giving it his best. He knew God had put bigger things in his heart. But even in spite of all that he did, after 10 years, Lakewood still had less than 200 members. My father could have thought, God, I must have heard you wrong. I thought you said we'd have a ministry that would touch the world. We're not even touching our own community. He could have gotten discouraged. But instead, he just kept doing his best, being faithful day in and day out. He got to ask a question. Does the law uh, grade on a curve or does it demand perfect obedience? If you're going to define faithfulness according to the law standards, none of us are faithful. That's why we need a savior. Notice this is a this is, this is an absolute cosmic Quid pro quo. If you are faithful, then God will. If you do this, then God will. And what happens when you knock yourself out and think you think you've done enough, but it still ain't enough? How do you know when you've been faithful enough? He preached three times a week, giving it his all, acting like there were thousands. And one day, it was like God opened up a faucet. People begin to come in droves from all over town. They grew out of that little building. They had to build a place seating a thousand. 
then 2,000, then 4,000, then 8,000. My father saw that dream come to fulfillment. What happened? He passed the test of smallness. He proved he would be faithful in the wilderness, and God promoted him to his promise. Wow, that's quite a claim. Land. That is quite a claim. He passed the test. Wow. Anyone out there uh, find anything wrong with this? I sure do. Really? So that's the conclusion. You passed the test of smallness, so I'm going to make you great. Hmm. I'm not seeing this in Scripture. The Scripture says here in Zechariah... Oh, here we go. Zechariah. <clears throat> we might have to do some work in the Bible. Hold on. Don't despise the day of small beginnings. What? Where is that? Zechariah. Hang on a second. Small beginnings. What? Hang on a second. Be beginnings. Hang on a second here. Don't despise the day of small begin. I don't think I'm going to find this. All text. Nope, not seeing it. Let's try beginnings here, and let's do an all-word search through the whole Bible. Numbers? No, let's try NASB. No, it's not in the NASB. Um, yeah, I don't know which reference he's using here. <sighs> you may start small, but if you stay faithful, you're not going to end small. <sighs> Hang on a second here. Going out into Google here, Zechariah, Zechariah, small beginnings. Hey, I'm, I gotta find this passage. Okay, oh, Zechariah 4.10, the message paraphrase. <laughs> Hold on, I don't own a copy of the message. I have to go to a website where it's available. And by the way, if you... If you need a free Bible online, uh, BibleGateway.com is uh, is a decent place. BibleGateway, I'm sorry, .org, BibleGateway.org. We're going to look in the message paraphrase, Zechariah 4. Okay. <clears throat> oh, boy. Okay, and it's verse 10. Uh, I think it's verse 10. Hang on a second here. Do not, yeah, from the message, Zechariah four ten. After the word of the Lord came to, to came to me, Zerubbabel started rebuilding the temple, and he will complete it. That your that your confirmation that God of angel uh, the God of the angel army sent me to you. Does anyone dare despise me? Despise this day of small beginnings. They they'll change their tune when they see Zerubbabel setting the last stone in place. What? How did he get that from that? <clears throat> Hang on a second here. Going to look it up. I, I'm just absolutely flummoxed here that uh, Joel Osteen thinks he got this. Um, for those who despise the day of small things, but these, but these seven will be glad when they see the plumb line of the hand of Zerubbabel. The, the Bi okay, Zechariah 4.10, he just completely took this out of context, took a partial sentence, gave us no context, and then basically derived from that, if you're faithful in small things, 
that God's going to, uh, you, you can pass the test and God's going to send you on to great things? Uh, that's not what the text teaches at all there, Joel. Uh, you wouldn't consider that to be a Bible twist now, would you? I sure do. In those 13 years that my father had 90 members, those were extremely important years. They were years of testing, years of proving. It may have seemed like they were insignificant, like he was just wasting his time. You know what I see in this sermon? Just want to put the worst construction on this because I just love doing that with Joel Osteen. You know, I'm sure there's probably a lot of people who've been attending his church for a while now, and the economy went south. And remember when the economy tanked, he preached all these things about hope and all that kind of stuff. And there's a whole bunch of people still in his congregation that are financially struggling, and they're sitting there going, hey, how, you know, I'm doing what you told me to do. How come I'm not experiencing these, you know, these great blessings? You promised me that if I had, you know, basically improved my faith to the point where I had, you know, swimming pool faith rather than tin bucket faith, that uh, God would fill it. Uh, I've done it, and God ain't filled it with nothing. And so now this is a kind of a follow up sermon to that things are, may not be happening quick enough. So you have to, well, I, did I forget to tell you that what you need to do is be faithful in the small things? And it might take 13, 14 years of, you know, before you pass the test. Just, you know. But the truth is, if it were not for those 13 years, my father would not have had the success that he had. That's what got him prepared. You may feel like you're doing something right now that's insignificant. You're in the wilderness, so to speak. It's not growing. You've got bigger things in your heart. feels like a waste of your time. But you need to have a new perspective. Just like my father, you're in a season of preparation. That's a time of proving. When we do the right thing and we're not seeing increase, we go the extra mile and nobody says thanks. You get to work on time and give it your best, even though you've got bigger things in your heart. Something's happening on the inside. That's building character. Your roots are going down deep. You're developing strength, trust, confidence. And you will only go as high as your roots go down deep. Don't despise the day of small beginnings. That's what's laying the foundation for how far God's going to take you. A lot of times we get frustrated and we think, God, why is it taking so long? I'm giving this business my best. When's it going to grow? God, I want to get married. When am I going to meet someone? God, I want to live in a nice house. Why am I still stuck in this small apartment? No, don't underestimate the value of small things. You may feel like nothing is happening, but God is closely watching you. He's seeing what kind of attitude you're going to have when you're not getting your way. How much effort are you going to put into it even when it's not growing? How consistent are you going to be when it's taken a long time, are you going to pass the test? Uh, boy, this kind of really takes uh, no notice of the fact that we are rich, wretched sinners and that we constantly, daily sin. What did Paul call himself? The chief of sinners. Well, that being the case, I mean, how could he possibly have been trusted with anything big? I mean, he constantly was, we're constantly biffing it on the small. What are you talking about? The, completely playing fast and loose and light with God's law, to say the least. Friends, harvest is not the only season. There are seasons of planting, seasons of watering, seasons of fertilizing, where we don't see any growth. It doesn't look like we're making any progress, but behind the scenes, God is getting us prepared. 
And the scripture says, don't get tired of doing what's right. For in due season, you will reap if you don't give up. For some of you... Where, why do I feel like he's taking that? Where is that verse? <sighs> no reference at all. Just, just whew, there goes the Bible verse. I don't know what the what the address is for that one. Your due season is right around the corner. You See, it's the quid pro quo. You know, you scratch God's back, He's going to scratch yours. That's what Joel's saying here. You have been faithful. You've done the right thing. Now is not the time to get discouraged. Now is not the time to slack off. Now is the time more than ever to dig your heels in and say, I may not see anything happening, but I know God's getting me prepared. So I'm going to keep pressing forward, being my best. I'm going to pass this test knowing that my due season is on its way. There's a certain kind of plant called the Chinese bamboo. For the first four years, it barely grows above ground. You can hardly see anything happening, even though you're watering it, fertilizing it, making sure it has the proper light. It looks like that nothing is happening. But underground, where you can't see, it's developing a massive root system. Those roots are spreading out in every possible direction. And in the fifth year, once the roots are properly established, that Chinese bamboo suddenly takes off and it will shoot up as high as 80 feet in the air. From zero to 80 all in one year. But so often, we want fifth year results without the four years of preparation. But without the years of underground growth, there would not be any above ground growth. Without the years of developing our character and proving to God that we'll be faithful, we won't see the end. Proving to God that we can be faithful. Boy, the talk about the rat wheel of good works. This, the, the, I kid you not, this is like almost cruelty at this point. Come on, get on there. Start proving to God that you can be faithful. He's holding up this big carrot, you know, promising you a big house and big blessing and these huge things in your life. <sighs> Got to be faithful with the small things. Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. You could do it. And you never can catch the carrot, can you? Because you can't be good enough. So what's going to happen? They're going to be people who just through the normal progress of life, they grow in their career and they go from, you know, male clerk to a desk job to a management position to a VP position to maybe even running the company. And they're going to they're going to wrongly assume that they've done all the right things to prove to God that they're faithful in the small things and God's rewarded them with this. Then there's going to be this whole group of people who continue to labor in their vocation in relative obscurity. You might be a plumber and you spend your entire time plumbing. There's no grand vision for your life. And so you think that, you know, somehow what's the big thing above plumber? And so you beat your brains out trying to prove to God that you're faithful and nothing ever changes. And what's the conclusion you come to? Uh, you can come to a couple of them. God is a crock. And this whole thing is just ridiculous. I'm not good enough. And, uh, you know, I obviously God is not happy with me because he's not rewarding me the way I should. And then something bad happens to you, like you come down with cancer or, 
you know, grow old and, you know, maybe you get out of control nose hairs or something and, and you're no longer attractive to the women. I don't know. But what what's your conclusion? You're not good enough or that, that God doesn't exist and doesn't hear your prayers? This is ridiculous. This is basically turning God into an employer, making basically the blessings of God a wage contingent upon your goodness. Yet the scriptures are so clear that this is not, we don't work from a wage mentality with God. We continue. Increase in promotion that we should. You may feel like that plant that nothing is happening. and You're wondering why God isn't doing anything. Even though you're being your best, you're watering, you're fertilizing, you're planting, but still the business isn't growing. The marriage isn't getting any better. But what you can't see is on the inside, God's doing a work in you. Every day you get up and give it your best with a good attitude, shaking off discouragement, shaking off self-pity, your roots are going down deeper. And at the right time, when God knows you're prepared, just like that Chinese bamboo, you're going to shoot up. God. We're just like Chinese bamboo. Yeah, biblical metaphor, I'm sure. God is going to thrust you to a new level. But understand, the longer it takes, the bigger your future. Many of you have been faithful for years and years. Even though you don't see anything changing, you just keep being your best, doing the right thing. That tells me that God has incredible things in store. You are developing a massive root system Because God is about to shoot you up higher than you ever even imagined. Don't get discouraged. You've come too far to stop now. (laughs) Keep going. I know it's not paying off yet, but just keep doing it. Keep giving money to the Joel Osteen ministry. It'll pay off eventually. Come on, you can do it. Don't give up now. (laughs) When it's taken a long time, those thoughts are telling you it's never going to change. It's never going to get any better. No, just keep reminding yourself, my due season is on its way. The reason it's taking a long time is because my future is so big. My roots are having to spread out wide because God is about to shoot me up high. This is what happened to David. David spent years and years on the backside of the desert taking care of his father's sheep. His brothers were out having fun, doing more exciting things. Here David got stuck with something kind of menial. He got the leftover job. David had big things in his heart. Samuel had already anointed him to be king. He knew God had something great for him to do. Oh boy, this is a twist of this story. He could have said, I'm not going to stay out here with these sheep. I've got more in me. I'm headed to the throne. This is a waste of my time. Um, keep in mind, uh, David was hunted down like a dog. Just a point. No, David understood this principle. He didn't despise the day of small beginnings. He knew that was getting him prepared. Can you give us a single passage of scripture that says that, Joel? Come on. He knew his roots were going down deeper. And so he stayed faithful and just kept being his best. And one day... Like that Chinese bamboo, suddenly he took off. When he defeated Goliath, suddenly he was thrust into his destiny. Overnight. What? He was suddenly thrust into his destiny. 
Are you familiar that after the David and Goliath story, uh, David ends up in the palace of Saul, and Saul, what does he do? Wants to kill him, tries to pin him to a wall with a spear, ends up hunting him all over the place. David ends up having to hide in the land of the Philistines and pretend to be a madman. (sighs) Yeah, that then. David became a national hero. All of Israel knew who he was. He was highly esteemed. But in reality... It didn't happen overnight. It happened because of years and years of faithfulness. Out there in the shepherd's fields when nobody was cheering him on, when he felt alone and forgotten, that's when he developed his massive root system. That's when he proved to God that he would be faithful. The scripture says, if you will be faithful in little, God will trust you with much. And you may feel like you're in the lonely shepherd fields right now. You're doing something that really feels insignificant to you. You know you've got more talent. You've got more on the inside. You could easily kick back and slack off and be less than your best. But I want to encourage you, you are in a very critical season. Without this season, your roots will not develop properly. Oh, man. I just am boggled by this. Absolutely. I'm getting sick to my stomach listening to this. Come on. This is not Christianity. This is not what the scriptures teach. If you want to be saved by the law, you've got to keep it perfectly. If you want to earn things from God through your own righteousness, well, then you've got to be righteous, and righteousness is defined as the perfect keeping of the law. None of us is it keeps is faithful in the little things. We're all a bunch of lying, cheating, thieving, rotten, wretched sinners. Oh, man. Without the underground growth, you'll never experience the above ground growth. Our attitude should be, I may feel stuck. This may feel mediocre, like less than I have to offer, but I'm going to keep being my best. I know my roots are spreading out. And at the right time, just like God did for David, he is going to thrust me to a new level. He is going to get... Again, he is not correctly telling us the story of David. David... Oh, man. And see, here's the deal. You ever notice that uh, Joel, he always defines greatness in in the terms of the American, uh, you know success story known by everybody wealthy well-to-do perfect health perfect teeth straight hair a celebrity if you would and yet we just read in the book of acts paul and barnabas after preaching the gospel and and literally performing a miracle by the hand of god that gave a crippled man his his ability to walk uh, the thanks that they got for that one is is that Paul was stoned by the people of the city until they thought he was dead. Where was... Uh, maybe he just wasn't faithful in the little things. Hmm. ...me to where he wants me to be. I know this gentleman that has a degree in marketing. He's very sharp, very talented. But right out of college, he couldn't find a job anywhere. Month after month went by and... He kept interviewing, doing everything he could, but no doors were open. How is it that this man is the number one pastor in America with the biggest church in the United States? I mean, 
I thought Americans can spot a phony. No, maybe they can't. It's just ridiculous. Opening up. Finally, a friend of his father's who worked at this huge global company offered him a position in the mailroom. He couldn't find anything else, so he took it. All during the day, even though he was way overqualified, he would unload boxes, stock the shelves, ship out the product. He never complained. He didn't get sour. He just kept thanking God that the right doors were going to open up. Three years went by and he didn't see anything happening. He'd gone on many job interviews, but still no success. His attitude was, this is where I am, so I'm going to be the best that I can be. I know if I stay faithful, I'm going to come into that fifth year. I'm going to see that unusual growth. One day, a position opened up in that same company in the marketing department. He applied and they hired him. A couple of months later, the man in charge of the department got transferred to another location. And against all the odds, they promoted this young man even over others that had more seniority. He just recently told me how he was made a vice president of all of marketing for that entire global corporation. What happened? He came in to his fifth year. And to which I basically say, and what about the pagan guy, the Hindu dude who's the, uh, you know, who ends up becoming the VP of marketing or gets the promotion or the Muslim guy who gets the promotion over you? How do you explain that? They're obviously not being faithful to God. They're following a false religion. Oh, man. Unbelievable. He passed the test. He didn't despise the day of small beginnings. He knew his root system was being developed. He went through planting, through watering, through fertilizing. One day like that Chinese bamboo, God shot him up higher than he ever imagined. Here's how Proverbs 28:20 puts it. The faithful will abound with blessings. That word abound means to be catapulted, to be thrust to a new level. Many of you have been faithful. You have given, you have served, you've gone out of your way to help people. You didn't complain when you didn't get the credit. You didn't get discouraged because it's taken the long time. You just kept being your best day in and day out. Well, you need to get ready. You are about to abound. God is about to do something new in your life. You are going to come into a new season. You have been through planting, you've been through watering, you've been through fertilizing, it's your time for harvest. Like that Chinese bamboo, you're going to see explosive growth. You're going to see God do unusual things to where you look up and think, how in the world did I end up here? Here's how. Your years of faithfulness, your years of being your best when nobody... Nothing about what Christ has done for me. It's all you. It's up to you. And you got you and your years of faithfulness. I do. Oh, man. <sighs> we continue. Nobody gave you credit. Your years of serving when nobody said thank you. Your years of loving those people when they were not easy to love. You developed a massive root system that can be promoted. That's what's going to allow God to catapult you higher than you ever thought possible. Yeah, what's going to catapult you is your faithfulness, your law-keeping, your good works, 
This is uh, not Christianity. This is purely a religion of works that we're listening to here. I have a friend that comes every week to the services. His tithe, 10% of the income that he gives, it is now more than his yearly income used to be. In other words, God has blessed him with 10 times more than he had just a few years ago. What's the secret? Years and years of giving when he didn't see anything happening. When his mind was telling him, you are wasting these funds. You could be putting this in savings. All these thoughts trying to talk him out of it. He didn't get discouraged. He just kept doing the right thing. Giving, serving, being his best. One day, he hit that fifth year. God thrust him higher than he ever even dreamed of. Maybe you've been giving a long time and not seeing any increase. That just means that your roots are developing. God is getting you prepared for amazing things. Stay faithful and keep passing that test. I'll never forget at our other location, I was in the lobby one day during the week and I saw this gentleman pulling on the glass door trying to get in. They were all locked. And so I walked over and opened it and asked him, how could I help him? And he handed me an offering envelope. He said, Joel, I'm going to be out of town this weekend, so I just wanted to stop by and drop my offering off. That's a faithful man. He wouldn't even leave the city without giving God what belonged to him. He can expect to abound sooner or later. (sighs) I am going to lose it. This is just pure works righteousness. No Jesus, no Christ, no forgiveness of sins, nothing that Jesus has done for us, all pure law. You do this, God does that. Wow. The windows of heaven are going to open up and pour out blessings he cannot contain. Just a few weeks ago, I saw one of our volunteers wearing a bracelet from the hospital. I could tell she had been a patient I asked what was going on, and she told how she'd had a fairly major surgery just four days before. The doctor wanted her to stay in the hospital at least for a week to fully recover. But she said, Doctor, I've got to go to church on Sunday. I'm a volunteer. I serve as a greeter. My team is expecting me. He said, No, ma'am, you may not leave this hospital. You are not going to church. She said, Doctor, I have to be at church. He looked at her and said, do you go to Lakewood? (laughs) Biting my tongue. He ended up, he ended up giving her a three-hour pass so she could leave the hospital. He said, you can go, but you come right back here and get in this bed so you can recover. That's Lakewood people. You can't keep them out of church. Faithful people. Some... Really? So the Lakewood people are faithful people. Yep. I'm going to... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm... Mm-hmm. Let's continue. People are always looking for an excuse not to come. Oh, my big toe's hurting. I can't go today. <laughs> my child has Little League at 7 tonight. We need 12 hours to prepare. Not Lakewood people. The faithful will abound. I remember. Okay, I'm going to point something out here. I told you, uh, Scripture contradicts this. This is a. This is the God of the wage. He's your employer. You're faithful. He promotes you. 
We read Romans chapter 1. So what shall we say then was gained by Abraham, our father, forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. But what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as is due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one whom God counts righteous apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. You see, Romans chapter 4 completely contradicts what this guy's saying. He's basically saying that you know God looks down on our righteousness, sees that we're faithful in enough things, and then he's going to, boom, start blessing us. And that blessing is all of these material and temporal things. Yet we read over and over again in Scripture that Christ promises suffering and persecution, maybe even losing our lives. And Joel Osteen promises us nothing but good things and, and basically uh, winning the American lottery, you know, having your 15 minutes of fame, living in a mansion, uh, having perfect health and teeth and all that kind of stuff. If you're faithful in the little things, and if you don't have it, well, then you're just not faithful. Remember the first little auditorium that Lakewood had, that little feed store that I talked about, was so old and run down had two main doors, one in the back and one over on the side. And the one on the side was so beat up and so old, you could hardly get it open. You'd have to struggle with it and finagle it. Back then, we didn't have the money to buy a new door, so we just left it closed. Nobody complained. We didn't despise the day of small beginnings. We just kept having services week after week, year after year. One day, we hit that fifth year and saw that explosive growth. I was thinking about today how blessed we are, but a lot of it is because of the faithful people from years ago. That first group of 90, they couldn't afford one. So if your church is small, it's because you're not faithful. One new door, but the faithful will abound. Do you realize in this building, there are 287 doors? God has shot us up higher than we ever even dreamed of. Because of their faithfulness. They are such an example of faithfulness. Not to God's word. Notice, I remember earlier at the beginning of the program in the, in the first monologue in the first hour, <clears throat> talked about the fact the religion of works is always based on subjectivity. He's not anchoring this in the clear exposition of God's word. He's talking about the story of Lakeland, giving these anecdotal stories about you know, bamboo and things like that. His theology is firmly planted in the air, in the subjective, not in the objective word of God. You may feel like you're stuck and you're not making any progress. And where you are is a waste of your time. Now, I want you to have this new perspective. You are not stuck. God is getting you prepared. That's a part of the process. Your roots are growing down deep. And if you will keep the right attitude at the right time, you will see increase that doesn't just affect you. It will affect your children and your grandchildren. 
No stinking thinking allowed. You gotta, you gotta do the right thing. Gotta be faithful. Gotta have the right attitude. Don't go negative on us. You are laying the foundation for future generations. Your faithfulness is going to cause not only you to abound, but you're going to pass it down to those that come after you. Keep being your best. Don't complain when it's hard. Don't quit because it's taken a long time. Don't give it a half-hearted effort. Yeah, I think my earlier interpretation's right. Things must not be going so well at Lakeland. People are getting tired and wondering where their big blessings are because they're doing everything that Joel tells them to do. And it sure has taken a long time. Recession's not over. Because it seems small, seems insignificant. You have to go through a season of smallness before you ever see God do great things. Most of you know how for 17 years, I worked behind the scenes here at the ministry doing the television production. And every Saturday night, I would go over to my father's house and pick out his suit and his tie to wear on television the next morning. My mother used to say, Joel, you do not need to come over here. Daddy is a grown man. He can pick out his own clothes. The problem was I had seen what my father had picked out before. (laughs) Daddy liked loud colors. You may remember the old campus. One time he had the Sunday school buildings painted bright red, lime green, orange, purple, yellow. Looked more like the Disney Channel. So I'd go by without fail every Saturday night and pick him out something to wear. I wrote it down on a chart that I would keep. Just a small thing. Some of my friends would give me a hard time. Joel, you pick out your dad's ties. You got better things to do than that. No, I wanted the broadcast to be the best it possibly could be. I never dreamed one day I would be picking out ties for me to wear on television. I never dreamed I would be the one in front of the camera. You see, because he was faithful in the little things. He got a promotion all the way to the the front of the camera. See, that proves it. No, actually, it doesn't. I know now it was all those years of faithfulness that were getting me prepared. I had to show that I would be faithful in the small things before God could trust me with much. When my father went to... You can't be trusted with God's word. You, You completely mangle it and twist it. Why should we trust you with anything? To be with the Lord and I took over. People would say, well, Joel came out of nowhere. Suddenly he was thrust on the scene. And yes, it was suddenly in one sense. But the suddenly only happened because of the 17 years before that I had done my best. So Joel is the perfect example of the guy who's faithful in the little things. And sure sure enough... He earned the promotion to the big time, and you can be just like Joel, because Joel doesn't even sin. I bet bet he even walks on rainbows. They said I came out of nowhere, but really, I came out of somewhere. (laughs) They just didn't see the years of preparation, the years of picking out ties, the years of traveling with my father. Obviously, they weren't years studying God's Word and getting an advanced degree in biblical studies or anything like that my best to make him look good. And I'm not trying to brag on me. I'm just making the point. If you're faithful in the small. Yeah, but you were bragging on you. When you're not getting the credit, when it's not exciting, when you've got bigger things in you, but you just keep being your best, staying under that authority, then at the right time, like that Chinese bamboo, suddenly God is going to thrust you to a new level. Suddenly a new door will open. Suddenly, a position will open up. Okay, again, 
the religion of works is based in pure subjectivity. Has he clearly proven this is the case from God's word? Absolutely not. And looking at Chinese bamboo doesn't help you either, or looking at Joel's story doesn't help you either. That's just pure subjectivity. Suddenly you'll get the break you need. Suddenly you'll meet the person of your dreams. It'll happen quickly. Suddenly you're going to die and you're going to be standing before your maker and and, uh, you better be ready to give an accounting of your life because if you think that you are going to stand up on your own righteousness, you got another thing coming. Repent and believe the good news of the forgiveness of sins offered in Jesus Christ, not as a wage, but as a gift. But you'll know the reason you got promoted was because all the years that you stayed faithful and did the right thing when you didn't see anything happening. Whenever you see someone that's blessed, someone in leadership, someone living an abundant life, you can be assured they went through a season of preparation. Really, including the pagans. There are a ton of successful heathens out there, Joel. What you're saying doesn't make sense. They're not faithful to God at all. How do you explain the success of Christopher Hitchens? They passed the test of being faithful in small things. There are no shortcuts. We have to be prepared before we're promoted. I think about how even Victoria, she used to do my father's hair. She wasn't trained in that. Her background is in the jewelry business. Her family owns a store. She was raised selling diamonds and jewels, a sophisticated business. One day, the lady that normally would do my father's hair and put some powder on him for television, she couldn't be there. And Victoria stepped up. We never asked her to do it. She said, hey, how about I'll do it today? My father liked how she did it so much, he asked her to do it on an ongoing basis. So Victoria would swing by every Sunday morning, pick my dad up and bring him to church and put that powder on and make sure he looked good. Here Victoria has sold jewelry to some of the most wealthy, influential people around. She's traveled the world buying diamonds and jewels. In a sense, she could have seen that as being a little insignificant. Why did I volunteer? I asked for one week. I didn't know it was going to be every week. No, she was just as happy as could be. She just kept being her best right where she was. And I really believe it was these years of serving behind the scenes that got us prepared for where we are today. The scripture says... You see, and now she's got, she's got children's books and she's being interviewed on Larry King Live. And if you're faithful like she is, you'll just have this amazing season of growth because God's going to look down and say, well, if that person's faithful. Though your beginning was small, your latter end will greatly increase. You may feel like you're in a small season today. You're not seeing a lot of growth. Not much is changing. But if you will be faithful where you are, increase is coming your way. Oh, man. Blowing sunshine. That's... Your latter days will be greater than your former days. Some of you think that you've already seen God's best. You're blessed. Your family is prosperous. You're living out your dreams. And that's great. But God is saying here, you haven't seen anything yet. The victories... Really? Where does God say that? ...you've experienced in your past are going to pale in comparison to what God has in your future. 
You may think you're far down the road, but in God's eyes, where you are right now is just the starting point. Where does it say that in Scripture? You're just making stuff up. Again, go back to my original point. The religion of works is purely based in subjectivity. That's all this is. And everyone says, oh, yeah, that's how it works. In the real world, it must work that way with God, too. Uh-huh. You haven't touched the surface of what God has in store. If 10 is the highest and zero is the starting point, God is saying you're just coming up to zero. You think you've done well. Really? You're talking for God now. Where does it say that, Joel? You think your business has grown. You think your family's been blessed. No, you need to get ready to abound. Get ready to be catapulted. When you abound, your income now will become your tithe. God has explosive blessings coming your way. Your income now will become your tithe. Really? Where does it say that in the Bible, Joel? I point it out because this is nothing more than pure subjectivity. It's not anchored in the correct exegesis and interpretation of God's word. He's just making stuff up. And what are these people doing? They're eating it up. They're as happy as clams. The problem is, is that he's feeding them bovine scatology. And they think they're getting God's word. You have not entered in to your fifth year yet. What you've seen God do in the past is just a spillover from your roots developing. But when you really hit your fifth year, God is going to shoot you up to a level. Where does it say this in the Bible again, Joel? Just asking again, you know, reiterating fact, pointing out the fact you ain't grounding any of this in Scripture. That you never even dreamed of. Keep being your best. Don't despise the day of small beginnings. Every day you get up and are faithful, your roots are going down deeper. If it's taken a long time, that just means you've got a big future. When you don't see anything happening, instead of getting discouraged, no, just keep reminding yourself, I'm not stuck. My roots are going down deeper. I'm getting prepared for increase. I want to declare this over each one of you. Because you are faithful, you will abound. They're not faithful. You need to tell them of their sins and their need for a Savior. You need to call them to repentance and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of of their sins. You are sending all of these people to hell, Joel. You will see God's blessings and favor in greater ways. New doors are going to open, new opportunities, new victories, new relationships. Because you are faithful, your roots are going down deeper. No storm. No clear teaching of the Word of God on this at all. No storm can topple you. No adversity can stop you. No enemy can defeat you. Yeah, except for death. And he will. Wow. Because you are faithful, your latter days will greatly increase. Your future will be brighter than your past. You will see every dream, every desire, every promise God put in your heart. I believe and declare you will see that come to pass. Amen. Do you receive that today? Nope. Don't receive it because it ain't true. It ain't God's word. It ain't there. It ain't taught in it. This is just complete malarkey. We never like to close our broadcast without giving you... All right, we're done. (laughs) Oh, man. 
Going back to my point, the religion of works is firmly grounded in pure subjectivity, not in the objective word of God. He didn't correctly exegete God's word. He mangled a few verses and then told a bunch of these anecdotal stories about his own life and about bamboo and and some lady in the hospital and and his wife and how faithful they were. and Uh-huh. The big problem is, is that this none of this is taught clearly in Scripture at all. It's, this is not biblical teaching. And you would be hard-pressed then to explain all the success of all the pagans in the world. How is it that the Saudi Arabians have so much money? I mean, is it that God is blessing them? Because of their faithfulness? Uh-huh. Yeah. I don't think so. Oh, and this is this man is the most popular preacher in America with the largest church in America. For a day is coming when people will not endure sound doctrine, but will gather around themselves teachers who will teach him what their itching ears want to hear. No longer endure sound biblical doctrine. That day is today. We pray for Joel and the folks that... Lakewood, that God would open their eyes and send prophets to them to speak the truth boldly and call them to repentance and the receiving of the forgiveness of sins because of Christ's death on the cross. Well, sadly, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. You can uh, email me if you'd like uh, regarding anything that we've said so far at talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. And just want to remind you again that uh, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend on you in order to pay our bills so that we can continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. It's a nice little work, you know, uh, symbiotic relationship, if you would. Uh, You can support us a couple of ways. You can visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and click on one of our friendly yellow donate buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And remember, if you want to follow me on Facebook, you can. Uh, Facebook.com forward slash Pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there again, Pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may the Lord richly bless you in his grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for your sins. Amen.